This message entitled, Second Fiddle, was delivered to Christ of Rock Bible Church on February 12th, 2023 by the Rev. Roy D. Warren Jr. The scripture reference is John 6, 60-71. Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying, who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What, and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore I said unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. From that time, from, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil. He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Amen. That last thing right there was uh, so crucial. Uh, being one of the 12. He was one of his followers. See, you can't really betray somebody unless you're close to them. One of the 12. Father, I want to thank you, dear God, for this day. You have given it, and you are the one, Lord, that is uh, truly on top of it, dear God, and making it clear that we, that we must, as Spurgeon said, we, we must spend that time. We must be with Jesus, dear God. We must be with Jesus. We must hear what he has to say today and every day. And we thank you, Lord. So open up our hearing, open up our understanding for this scripture that's before us today. And once again, Lord, once again, we will see it speak a powerful truth of, of clarity and uh, absolute understanding as to who Jesus really is. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. At the beginning of the service, I mentioned the story about the newlyweds, and uh, we started to bring up the subject of the... uh, possibility of living by excuses. Um, The following illustrations that I'm going to share with you are the actual explanations that have been submitted to an insurance company by drivers. Now, this is a true story. These things were really said by one party or the other in the case of um, an accident, let's say, okay? And I think they, they begin to show the human ingenuity for excuses. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm saying it's what people do, 
right? They, you know, all come up with a, a way to get out of the uh, further trouble that they might have seen otherwise. How about this? The one, the one party said, the other car collided with mine without giving warning of its intentions. I thought my window was down, but I found it up when I put my hand through it. Okay, these aren't funny yet. Just be watching. A pedestrian hit me and went under my car. That's it, Jason. Go ahead, let it out. Huh? Pedestrian hit me and went under my car. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. What do we need, a laugh track? We need a laugh track. Okay. As, as I approached the intersection, a stop sign suddenly appeared in a place where no stop sign had appeared before. The telephone pole was approaching fast. I was attempting to swerve out of its path when it struck me in the front end. Telephone pole, hit him. No one was to blame for the accident, but it never would have happened if the other driver had been alert. But nobody's to blame. The lack of experience, I guess, can be costly, as is illustrated by this particular uh, story of the duffer, that is, the golfer, who wasn't really that great. He kept hitting the brand new balls into the lake or across the highway or into a, steward, uh, a sewer uh, storm drain uh, or out into the woods, wherever they might get easily lost. George suggested a friend, why don't you use an old ball for those difficult shots? An old ball? I don't have an old ball. As he keeps going through the ones in his box. <laughs> All right. And then there was the golf professional hired by a large department store to give golf lessons. Uh, and he was approached by two women. Do you wish to learn to play golf? He asked one of the women. Oh no, she replied, it's my friend, my friend right here, who would like to learn. You see, I learned yesterday. And of course, she's got it down pat, so I don't need to learn anything else. Excuses. It's kind of like we were talking about last week. I think it's a, ma a matter of perspective. The problem here is basically in this story now, as we've already heard it read in John chapter 6, that nobody really wanted this Jesus. Oh, I mean, the original disciples did, okay? You could say 12 of them, yet one would be later, or even in the story is pointed out as being not a, not a good follower, not a true follower, okay? But the crowds... Some people suggest there was probably not just hundreds, but maybe thousands of people that were following him. Many of them, of course, watching for miracles, looking to get a healing or whatever it might be. Big, big crowds. Someone once asked a famous conductor, 
what he thought was the most difficult instrument in the orchestra to play. And without hesitating, he replied, second fiddle. Second fiddle. Have you ever had that role? Maybe you were second string quarterback in high school, maybe first runner up to a scholarship winner, or perhaps you were second or third child in a family of overachievers. I mean, if so, you have a bit of an idea what it means to play second fiddle. Not to be the person up front, but be the person back behind. Second fiddle. On the other hand, you can view that, that designation completely differently. When you get into band, and I never did that myself, but Kara was in the, in the band over at Freeport, there was, you know, first chair for this and first chair for that. And the people that were better at the particular instruments, say trumpet or, or flute or whatever it might be, oboe or whatever, you know, would sit in this chair. And then maybe another person would progress past that one and be tested for it and end up moving from second chair to first chair. Okay. And so there's, a, there's that other way to look at it. But what this is talking about is to be in the, in the background, to be second fiddle, okay? Andrew, the disciple, he knew about this. You see, his brother was Simon Peter. Simon Peter was bold. Simon Peter was brash. He was bigger than life. He was a, he was a fisherman. He's... He was a disciple who had highs and he had lows, and those highs and lows were peppered, salted, if you will, throughout the pages of Scripture. In this story or that story, you know, there's something where Peter didn't match up or Peter didn't do this right or Peter did this perfectly or whatever, okay? He was always known for his being out front of everything, okay? Now, Andrew was his brother, uh, but seemingly always in St. Peter's shadow. But he was reliable, he was consistent, talking about Andrew here, and he was humble. His agenda was simply to do the work of Jesus. He didn't have to have the glory, he didn't have to have the recognition, he didn't have to have the, the name tag or whatever. I mean, sometimes Jesus, or Peter would be called, you know, the, the disciple, you know, the, the uh, clearly out front of everybody else. Peter and John would oftentimes take that role. But his agenda was simply to do the work of Jesus. And it didn't matter to him who got the credit. If he didn't get the credit and somebody else did, that wasn't a problem for Andrew. In fact, he brought his brother Peter to Christ. He's the one that brought Peter to come to know Jesus. And he brought others as well. If you scan the scriptures, you'll see stories of that too. But as far as we know, and we don't know, okay, but it's never mentioned. He never preached a sermon. He never led a revival meeting. He was strictly behind-the-scenes kind of guy. So we think. And I'm not saying he was or he wasn't, but that's the picture that you have of Andrew. He's, he's never, never really up front. He's the one that brought Peter, and Peter was the one who was up front. 
On one occasion, the great Simon Peter stood and preached. Remember this? 3,000 people came to know Christ. Do you have any idea how many Andrew won that day? Andrew won 3,001. You see what they're talking about here? Because it was Andrew who, who first won Peter. Peter preaches and 3,000 people get saved. So in a very real sense, Andrew was out in front. He's not recognized for it. He's not known for it, except if you were to scan the rest of the scriptures, you'd soon see it. I mean, it was Andrew who went home and told his big brother, you know, I've, I've, met, a, I've met a man and I think he's the one we need to follow. He's the one that we need to look to. You should meet him too, Andrew. You should meet him too. Or Peter, rather. And based on Andrew's recommendation, Peter did go to see Jesus. So every time Peter stood and wooed great thongs, throngs of people to the Lord, Andrew had a part in that work in the sense that he brought Peter in the first place. See how crucial it is to give Jesus to everybody? That person could end up being somebody to bring a whole slew of people to Jesus, but it started with you bringing him or her. You see what I'm saying? And Andrew had that part. Andrew had that place of second fiddle. And it's a very, very important instrument in God's orchestra. Second fiddle. And as I said, you can use that phrase to talk about which chair this one is sitting in or which chair another one is sitting in, but that's not what we're talking about here. Second fiddle. Praise the Lord. The ultimate in encouragement, and praise God for that, you know, Andrew would certainly be that. But what about the greatest discouragement? I have a feeling the greatest place of discouragement was right here in John chapter 6. Look at verse 60. Okay, verse 60. Before this scripture comes up, Jesus had really laid it on the line. He said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they didn't quite understand what he's getting at, so he would explain himself. Don't murmur among yourselves. It says in verse 43, no man can come to me except the father which has sent him, sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets that they shall be all taught of God. And every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. In 48 he says, I am the bread of life. Now what do you do with bread? You eat it, right? Oh, you can do all kinds of things with it. You can, oh, you can make sandwiches or you can toast it or you can, you know, roll it up and, and, and put some uh, uh, ham and cream cheese in it. That's a pretty good way to go. <laughs> uh, Anyway, 
But it says in verse 53 that Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. And probably a couple of them started to think he's talking about cannibalism. He's talking about eating people. I mean, it seems to be what he's saying, but it's not what he's saying. Not, re not really at all. He is the bread of life. And we eat bread. It's a very staple thing in our diets. And uh, in verse 54 says, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinks my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. And right there he explains, that's what he's talking about when he says, you eat me, you're living by me. You're listening to what I say, and, and, you're, and you're doing what I tell you to do, and so forth. You're living by me. It says in verse 57, This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna. I'm not talking about the manna guys. That's what he's saying. And, and are dead. They died. But that eateth this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And the people found it to be a very hard saying. Because they refused to see the truth of it. <laughs> they just, they figured he's talking about cannibalism. He's talking about us actually grabbing his arm and taking a bite out of it. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. It's not what he was talking about. And when we think about communion, I think we understand that. We see that rather clearly. You know, because here's the bread. You eat the bread, it's similar to assimilating my body into your life. Same thing with the juice. It's like assimilating my blood into your body. Okay, you're not actually, you know, some people actually believe that that has been turned in, in some kind of miraculous way, that bread and that juice has been turned into the actual body and blood of Jesus. Actual human flesh. And you know that's not true. That's, that's not the case. It's a picture. It's a picture of it. Praise God. Well, many, therefore, of his disciples, not referring to the 12, but referring to the thousands of other people that were gathered, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? The Greek word for hard is scleros. We use the word to talk about the hardening of the arteries, for example, or hardening of anything, really. It's to make it dry, it's to make it tough, to make it severe, to make it fierce. It's a hard saying. Who can hear it? Who can listen to it? Who can believe this thing? It's just too hard. I know I've often thought, and I've mentioned from time to time, I wonder if this was done on purpose. I know the chapter numbers and the verse numbers, they all came later, but I wonder if God didn't direct it to be able to say this one thing. It's John chapter 6, verse 66. Verse 66 says, From that time, many of his disciples went back 
and they walk no more with him. That, of course, is the spirit of Antichrist. And what's the number? Chapter 6, verse 66. 666. The chapter, the, the number of the beast in the book of Revelation. Now, you know, did God allow it to become those numbers in order that it might be a reminder to us? I gotta think maybe maybe so. Maybe so. But like I said, they didn't pick out the chapter numbers and the and the verse numbers until later. But I think it's a powerful, powerful thought. 666, the mark of the Antichrist. This is the spirit of Antichrist that just turns his back on Jesus and walks no more with him. Okay? I think this is probably one of the places for the most discouragement. Andrew might have been the great encourager. Barnabas might have been the great encourager. In fact, his name means consolation. Okay? But I think this is probably one of the prime stories of discouragement that you'll ever find in the scriptures. And that's where thousands of people that were following him just turned around and walked the other way. Just left. I think it's the spirit of Antichrist, so why wouldn't it be named 666? If it's not, of course, the, the initial reason or how it became 666, it doesn't matter. It still speaks of it. All right? Now imagine having the foreknowledge of who would betray you. To know ahead of time who it is that's going to do this dastardly deed. Okay? This may mean that Jesus knew when Judas began to drift from his original faith, assuming that he had one. I mean, he was called to be a follower of Jesus. He was called as the disciples. He, w- he was given a part in the ministry. Okay? So where did he start to go the other way? Where did he start to fall down? How did, where, how did he drift from original faith and, and form the plans to actually betray Jesus? Judas had the same choices as the other 11 disciples. He was a believer. He knew, he knew that Jesus was this, this very special guy and he had been following him for years, okay? Just as the other disciples did. He was a believer. He trusted. In, in, back, in fact, Psalm 41 verse 9 says prophetically that he was the f- familiar friend of Jesus. That the familiar friend of Jesus is going to betray him. Okay? And I think that's shown in Christ's commitment of himself to Judas. Now, how many times have I preached on that? I think probably several. I have made it clear. I have made it conspicuous. I have made it obvious that Jesus was reaching out at numerous times throughout their relationship and and calling Judas away from his sin. He did. Remember? They said, well, who's going to betray you? What are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus said, the man who dips the bread in the kereseth, the man who dips it in the bowl, and eats it at the same time I do. All right? That's the one that's going to betray me. And who ends up dipping the bread in the bowl when Jesus said, Judas. 
Jesus did that in order to draw him away from what he was about to do. Okay? Judas later turns aside to his own choice, as it says in Acts chapter 1. He did not have to betray Jesus. Some people think, and I've gotten into discussions with people before about this, they think it was predestined that Judas be the betrayer, that it was always set up. No, 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 no. No, he had just as much a chance to follow Jesus in the right way as everybody else. But God knew. God knew that it was going to be him. That didn't make him do it. It's like we said last week. You know, there's that taking, there's that lambano, but you don't make it. You can't make someone do this or that or something else. But you're going to know that I mean, if, he, if this is God and God knows all things, he knows that it's going to be Judas that's going to do the dastardly deed. In other words, the betrayal of Jesus was prophesied as to its occurrence only, that there was going to be somebody to betray him and that it was going to be Judas, but he did not make Judas do it. And I think we've got to see that. We've got to understand that. He's not going to make you do things you don't want to do. Either way. For good or for bad, not going to make you. All right. The specific person to betray Christ was not predestined from all eternity. Judas's defection to the enemy and the consequent tragedy should warn every follower of Christ not to reject the Spirit's warning about friendship with the world and treachery to Christ. Jesus was making it very, very clear that a lot of people don't really want this spiritual relationship. I mean, that's true. If thousands of people walk away from him in, in mass, in group, you know, they just all turn around and walked away. Then that says something more about them than it says about Jesus. It's okay to see him as a friend. That's what, you know, he can be your pal, can be your buddy, but is he Lord? I mean, those are possibilities. I'm not saying those are good things, but, but is he Lord? That's the best. That's the, the, the true thing that brings us into that relationship with him. And that's what's too hard for a lot of people. That's why they said this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Who can, who can want it? Who can believe it? That we give our lives over to Jesus. We let him be in control. Let him be the boss. Okay? It's a hard saying they're, they're, they're saying about it. Many want Jesus their own way. And they want him in their own terms. But Jesus knows the difference. Stephen Covey wrote a bestseller back in the 1990s. And he entitled the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. The book had many interesting and very applicable principles of effectiveness in it. Not the least of which was this. Begin with, and we've talked about this before, so this is, this is a repeat, okay? Begin with the end in mind. Don't just head off into something not knowing where it's going to go. Begin with the end in mind. In other words, know where you want to end up and adjust your starting point and every point along the way 
accordingly. See, you've, you've got to adjust not just the starting point, but you've got to adjust every step or every point, every dot along the way. Because what happens? If you start okay, what happened in Pilgrim's Progress? Well, I think I'll go this way. I think I'll go that way. You know? And they go off and they think they got a shortcut or something. And before they know it, they're totally off track. It's kind of like Jesus, they're like Joel was saying, you know, about the, the uh, out at the McConnell's Mill. You know, stay on the trail. Stay on the trail. Do a lot of people listen to that? You better believe there are a lot of people that don't listen to that because they think it's better to do this other thing. I'm going to have this excitement. And like Joel said, not everybody makes it out of there. It's not a lot of people, but you know, it's once in a while. You see, you've got to have the end in mind if you're going to be getting there. You're not going to get there if you don't have that end in mind, okay? And I think for all of us, it ought to be something along the lines of, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what the Bible speaks of. For every believer, there will be that great getting up morning, as the song says, okay? That judgment day, and on that day, uh, I don't know about everybody else, but I can hopefully talk for all of us. We want to be deemed a good steward in his eyes. A good steward in his eyes. While we are saved by grace, and we are saved by grace alone, every believer in Christ is going to go through a judgment. We will be judged not for salvation, though, because if you have Christ living in your heart, you have that. Okay, the judgment comes in stewardship. It comes in, you know, what we decide to do with our time. You know, is it is it for Jesus or is it for somebody else or ourselves or whatever? So, what do you do with your time? What did you do with the gifts that you were given? What did you do with your resources and the precious relationships that God has entrusted to you? Our motive in all of these areas should be to picture the end clearly. But don't leave it at that. I think you do have to have an idea how the trail leads to that end. Right? You take this step and this step, and it's like following dots, you know? Or if somebody, or if somebody had left a trail for you, you know, like M&Ms, you know? And they'd follow the M&Ms or something, you know? Pieces of bread pieces of bark, whatever, okay? Our motive in all these things is to picture the end clearly and to desire to hear our master say, well done. Praise God. Many just don't see their need for this, what the Bible calls a born-again relationship. So Jesus decided to turn the corner on this thing. He turns to his own twelve from dealing with thousands walking away, he turns to his own 12 who are still there, praise God. But what about you guys? Where do you stand? Look at verse 67 and following, okay? Then Jesus, then said Jesus unto the 12, will ye also go away? Are you gonna do the same thing? 
Then Simon Peter, watch this. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And I'm just kind of guessing that it's probably a, uh, a newer translation or something that changes that just a little bit. Still says the same thing. But changes a little bit and says, you alone have the words of eternal life. That's not what it says in the King James, but, but that's what it is. And that's what it, if you look at it carefully, that's really what it is. You have the words of eternal life. Who else would have the words of eternal life? Praise God. And we believe and are sure. Watch this. This is Peter. <coughs> Peter. We believe and we are sure that you are that Christ, the Son of the living God. You don't get any clearer than that. Quite evident, quite obvious, quite conspicuous I was sharing this thought at the nursing home uh, the other day and the um, one of the activities people that was in activities when uh, Cindy was in the nursing home her name is Crystal her name is Crystal and she's since got moved since they don't have a lot of need for activities because <laughs> they don't have the staff for it so she's a CNA now. So she gives out medicine and she does clean up and all kinds of stuff like that. Well, this particular day, she was in with the people like the activities people used to be. To, to be there in the room with everybody and kind of keep a handle on things. <laughs> you know, if somebody starts to get a little rowdy or, you know, starts, you know, being a distraction or whatever, they can go ahead and jump up and take care of it. Okay, but numerous times, several times, this, this word came up, crystal, crystal, clear as crystal, crystal clear, obvious, conspicuous, okay, clear, all right, and I thought, you know, Part of me wanted to go ahead and make a point of that, <laughs> that her name was Crystal. And look at how God is speaking about the crystal clarity of the things that he has in his word for us. But I could tell by looking at her face, she was already taking it in. She was already hearing it. She was already understanding. Because sometimes you can look at people and you can tell, you know, they're you know, not paying really any kind of attention, just kind of looking here and there and everywhere. But she was right in on it. It was her name. She's Crystal. Praise God. And then Jesus says, out of the blue, or should I say, out of the red, because it's red letter now. Red letter. Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Diabolus is the Greek word here, diabolus, or accuser. Demonic understanding here. One of you is a devil. Have I not chosen you twelve? Listen, you don't hear what Jesus is saying? I chose Judas. 
He didn't say, I chose the 11 and Judas tags along. No, he said, I chose all 12 of you, including Judas. Praise God. And he even declares, but this one's a devil. This one's planning on going his own direction. He's not going to go all the way with me. And then 71 just clarifies it. He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him. Simply meaning who would betray him. It's not that he had to do it. You want to be clear about that. But notice what it says after that. Being one of the 12. And it's like I said at the outset of the message today. That's crucial to hear. And that's crucial to understand. You cannot betray Jesus unless you're close to him. And you would think that anybody close to him would not betray him. But here comes Judas. See, he's got his own. I'm going to go this way with it. Jesus can take the others over that way, but I'm going this way with it. I'll bet I can get 30 pieces of silver out of this guy. Did you ever notice that it's, it's, it's not the religious leaders that came to him and said, can you turn Jesus over to us? No, it's him who went to them and said, what will you give me? What will you give me? Turns out to be 30 pieces of silver. You know, that's not a lot of money. In today's money, today, that would be about six or seven bucks. Now, hey, anymore, six or seven bucks is getting to be kind of a lot of money, okay? You know, with the way the economy and so forth is going. But, you know, the fact is, that's not a lot of money to, to sell somebody for, you know? And yet he did. Now, that's in today's market but 30 pieces of silver wasn't worth too much back then either just 30 pieces of silver it's all it was even after the relationship was made clear Jesus pushes the envelope so to speak what what about what about all of you guys and I do know that one of you is going to act like a devil. Okay, I do know that. Pastor Ed Young from down in, uh, I believe North Carolina, I think is where he's from. Uh, he writes a devotional book and, and uh, other things along the way. And he's, he shares the story. He says, as I was a seminary student, I worked at a church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And it was there that I had the privilege of debriefing Mrs. Jane McRae. Who's that? She was a missionary to the Gaza Strip over in Israel. I don't remember much about that interview except the story she told when I asked her to describe the toughest position she found herself in during that time in Gaza. What was the hardest thing? You had to live through. You know, these people, this saying is too hard for us. We got to go in a different direction. And Jesus is trying to make clear, (laughs) that doesn't matter if you think it's a hard place or not. Everybody's got to go there. If you're going to be, if you're going to belong to God, if you're going to belong to Jesus, everybody goes there. So this is what she said. This was her answer. A stateside church sent some clothing for the children. 
And as I unpacked the clothes, I saw that they had placed a New Testament, you know, one of those little ones, like a Gideon size kind of thing, in, the, in every pocket of every piece of clothing to get the Bible out there, to get the word out there. Now, because it was illegal to distribute Bibles there, she felt forced to go through every item and remove them. Now, that looks like she's really wimping out. You know, getting the Bible out of people's hands. But watch. There were hundreds of them, she said. (laughs) Hundreds of Bibles. And I put them in a sack. I was thinking to hide them somewhere safe. But as I was walking through town, some boys saw me carrying that sack. And they must have thought that there was food in it. And they grabbed it, and they ran. And when the boys got around the corner, they opened the bag, and they found nothing but books, Bibles. And they were madder than a hornet. (laughs) They were bugged. All right, so you know what they did? They ripped the books up, literally pulling the pages out of their binding. Every one of the books pulled all the pages out, tearing out the pages. Then, she said, pages of the New Testament began to fly all over the village as a wind came up. They were just everywhere. I mean, it looked like somebody had been majorly littering, but she knew what it was. It wasn't long before the books were traced back to her, however, to Mrs. McRae, And she was charged with distributing illegal literature. She was instructed to appear before... Now listen to this. You don't think God knows what he's doing. Watch this. It wasn't long before the books were traced back to her. She was instructed to appear before a government official the next day. But that night, she had some unexpected visitors... A little girl knocked on my door, she told me, and with her was an army officer. He told me that his daughter had heard about my plight, meaning being in trouble for these Bibles, and asked him to hear my side of the story. As I told him, he paced the floor. And when I was done telling him, he said this. He said, Mrs. McRae, this is very serious. But you cannot go to court. You can't go to court. I will go in your stead. I will go and stand in your stead. And this army officer did just that forfeiting his name, forfeiting his rank, forfeiting his career, forfeiting everything he had to protect her. Then she looked at me with tears in her eyes. And she said, Eddie, talking about this Ed Young. Eddie, He stood in my stead. 
And as she said it, I knew that it was just what Jesus Christ had done for me. He stood instead of us. Glory be to God. And that's it right there. That's it. It's not just a matter of knowing he loved everyone. And I want to be very clear about this. The Bible does say he loves everyone. And I said this at the outset of the service too. Loves everyone. Love, love the whole world. Whosoever. Remember? He made salvation possible for everyone. But here's the key. He made salvation available for me. For you. For your children. For mothers, fathers, aunts, uncles, everybody. But as me. You hear what I'm saying? Not using a generic, he saved everybody. Uh -uh. No, he saved you and you and you and you and you and you and me. And there's a big difference there. He made salvation for me. And he made salvation for you. And I suppose in one sense, we can see our role as second fiddle. But not in the sense that we just don't matter to Jesus. Each and every one of us does matter to Jesus. And as he was on that cross, how many times have I said this? As he was on that cross, he had you in his mind. How else would you put it? He had you in his mind. He was doing it for you. And yes, that means everybody, but it was for you. And I think we got to get real clear on that. Each and every one of us does. Got to be very clear. We've got to be crystal clear. So, Forget the excuses, okay? And just fall in love. Just fall in love with him. He loves you. And I think it's true. I've said this before, but I do think it's true. He would have died on the cross if you were the only one that needed it. That's because it's very personal. It's for each and every one of us. Fall in love with him, amen, and do that forever. Praise God. See, Christianity is not just a matter of being serious about him at one point in your life and then, eh, you know, fall away from it. Like Judas went off in his own direction, you know, when he thought maybe nobody was looking. I don't know. But it didn't work too well for him, did it? And God's trying to make that very, very clear. He's trying to manifest that. He's trying to make it obvious. Praise the name of Jesus. And he does. I think he does. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked 
no more with him. And that's when Jesus turns his attention to his own people. All these others, they said, forget it. Too hard. A lot of people are doing that today. Too hard. But his own people are not saying that. His own people are saying, yes, Lord Jesus. Amen? Father, I want to thank you, dear God, for this truth that has been here today. It's one of the many places throughout this Gospel of John that makes it very obvious, makes it very conspicuous who Jesus really is. It's only one of many, and I thank you for it here today. We pray, dear God, that we would truly love you all the way, not quit halfway down the road. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen.